Hello and welcome back to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis. I am Dr. Jim Chaltis and today I'm going to follow up from my last episode on the male hormone system and discuss more about the female hormone system. You know, we have, uh, share some similar hormones uh, between male and female physiology, which of course do very, very different things um, in those individuals. Uh, but today we're going to talk about it from a, a specifically female perspective and, and really maybe set down the foundations, you know, of, of how that whole month cycle, um, hopefully a nice, you know, kind of a round number, like a 28-day cycle um, is, is occurring for those women. Um, and if not, why? Like what happened? What's, you know, what are some things that might be you know, feeding into that that abnormality in the cycle and and possibly even fertility right I mean uh, fertility is a whole other topic all of its own and um, you know first things first right we need to understand like what's happened in that cycle right that either just makes for an uncomfortable experience for for that woman or possibly uh, renders them less fertile and and therefore conception can become difficult uh, of course, there's always the, the sperm that needs to be present and, and healthy in just the right way for that conception to occur. Um, that, that, you know, oftentimes it's the women that kind of take on a lot of that burden, you know, in a medical sense, when in reality, hey, it, it, it takes two to tango, right? So we can't forget the, ma the male side of things when we're talking about fertility. But there's a lot that can happen in a month. In a, in a monthly cycle that just doesn't create the correct terrain, you know, the correct environment for this this fertilized, you know, embryo and this fetus to develop and implant and, and be comfortable and thrive, right, leading to the development of a baby. So whether that is in somebody's interest or not, right, the act of conception and having babies is secondary. Um, the first thing is to really appreciate the, you know, the, the complexity and the and really, hopefully, the fluidity and and the beauty of, of this this 28-day cycle. So, as I have mentioned many times, everything starts in the brain, right? Um, and the pituitary gland, pituitary gland being just under the brain. I kind of consider them very similar, um, but but the brain talks to the pituitary, which is the master gland, and then the pituitary sends its signals to the other glands of the body like the thyroid, we've spoken on the thyroid, and on the testes, we've spoken about the testes, <laughs> and the ovaries, of course, they're always talking. There's always this feedback system that's going. It's called negative feedback. The signal from the pituitary gets sent, the ovaries respond, the hormones are produced, those hormones make it back to the brain and the pituitary, and then that original signaling is moderated in some way. You know, maybe the hormones are too low, and so the, the negative feedback means we're going to raise the signaling level. We're going to send more FSH, let's say, you know, if estrogen is low. Or if estrogen is too high, then we're going to see FSH start to go down, right? So that's, that's negative feedback. It's this inverse relationship that over time should kind of smooth out and be nice and gentle, right? Always kind of making micro adjustments, little micro adjustments that, that help that particular system, and I don't care if it's thyroid or testicular or ovarian or adrenal, right? They're all kind of ruled by this brain pituitary gland system that always talks to each other. Now, when it comes to the pituitary hormones in the female system, 
right? We have two, just like the males, FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, and LH, luteinizing hormone. And as I mentioned before, these, these hormones were discovered in women first, therefore they were named after female concepts. Follicle stimulating hormone, right? The follicle are the follicular cells, you know, they make up these groups of cells, almost like little glands within the ovary themselves, uh, where the egg is produced, uh, where the egg is nurtured, where the egg is, is you know, developed and, and ready for um, ovulation to occur, right? So FSH tends to stimulate follicles. Follicles also produce estrogen. So when we think about how does a, um, a woman create estrogen, it, it happens under the direction of the brain and pituitary gland via this you know, stimulating hormone, FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. So once that happens, the ovulation occurs over time, you know, roughly mid-cycle, and you know, the egg is released, it either becomes fertilized or it doesn't, but that follicle now, that that once housed that mature egg, egg cell, it shrinks back. It becomes what's called a corpus luteum. It becomes a temporary gland of its own. It's where the progesterone comes in. It's where the majority of the progesterone is produced um, by, these, by these kind of shrunken back, um, you know, follicles that have, have since re uh, released an egg. They do that, though, under the direction of another pituitary hormone, luteinizing hormone, LH. So FSH is more for estrogen, and that tends to be more dominant in the first half of the cycle. So day one of the cycle is day one of the period. Right? The first day of bleeding is day one. That's how you count it. And then by roughly day 14, on a typical 28-day or so cycle is when you would expect ovulation to occur, right? And then the second half is, is what we call the luteal phase. The first half is called the follicular phase. You're maturing the follicle, you're getting ready for the, the egg to be released and for ovulation to occur. And then it happens, and then the second phase is the luteal phase, corpus luteum, right? It has more to do with that. The, the progesterone piece of the month. So in any given month, here's how it goes. We're going to start from period day one, okay? The period is happening. Uh, the lining of the uterus called the in, endometrium, um, pardon me, the endometrial lining, it, it sheds. That's, that's the blood flow. And that can last anywhere from, you know, three to seven days on average. And ideally, that should be generally uh, painless <laughs> it's not always but in a perfect world it's a it's a gentle process and um, there's usually some you know maybe some darker blood up front um, it could could be fresh red but hey you can have all kinds of presentations there could be um, it could be clots there could be pain you know there could be extended periods you know this all tells us something about the about the cycle where things are going wrong so Regardless, you have your period day one, you get through that. You know, it's maybe it's a five, six days later and, and the period's over now. And then you, you march through up until about day 14. That's your follicular phase. During that time, FSH levels are gonna 
you know, kind of start to grow a little bit in the beginning, especially, and um, they're going to start to stimulate these follicular cells to make estrogen, and estrogen levels are going to start to climb. And what that does is it helps the endometrial lining start to thicken. You know, it's a very estrogen-sensitive tissue, uh, the endometrium. You need to have a nice, you know, fertile, if you will, you know, a nice, rich, blood-engorged, you know, lining in order for that, that newly fertilized, um, you know, embryo to implant into there and then to thrive and become a little fetus and a little baby, right? So we want to have a nice thick endometrial lining. That has a lot to do with that first phase, just building it up. And then you're going to have a what's called an estradiol peak. Estradiol is just a form of estrogen. You're going to have an estradiol peak, which is going to trigger the ovulation. It's going to trigger, you know, those, you know, those, those uh, follicles to rupture, and the egg will be expressed, right? And if that happens, you know, the egg will be floating somewhere, usually in the fallopian tubes, on its way down to the uterus proper. And it usually, if there's sperm in the vicinity, it, it will probably meet the sperm in the fallopian tubes, and fertilization actually occurs there. It, it then travels down farther, and it finds a nice little comfy spot in the uterus in this nice developed endometrium. In very rare occasions, the pregnancy can stop and it can lodge in the fallopian tube. It's an ectopic pregnancy, which is a true medical emergency. Um, th those, those conceptions are, are not usually <laughs> able to be saved. So um, that's, that's tough for everybody. But ideally, it gets down in there. Now, you know, forgetting um, it, that that happened at all, like it, just in a normal system, there was no fertilization, there was no conception that occurred. Um, you know, the, the egg just does its thing, it gets released, and it, it doesn't have anybody to meet that day. Um, the system will say, okay, we're going to reset ourselves. So that corpus luteum will develop, and it's going to just kind of keep that progesterone going on that second half of the cycle. And the job of the progesterone is just to make sure that that lining is as healthy as possible, just in case, you know, just in case there's a, a fertilization. And um, it only has enough to really last a few weeks. Right? It's a temporary gland. It's not like this official gland that we have in our bodies um, that just is there forever. It's, it's, it's the follicle that used to have an egg that shrunk back into a temporary gland. And it only lasts a couple weeks. Now, if conception does occur and you know, a little embryo does, does hit the lining and start to develop, it very quickly itself is going to start to produce tissues that'll end up as placenta, um, which will start to produce progesterone to keep it alive for itself. It starts to self-promote its own environment, right? So it's no longer the job of the corpus luteum at that point to keep the progesterone high and the, and, and the endometrial lining thick. Um, it can start taking over itself. But if it doesn't, if there's no conception, then you lose your progesterone. So at the very end of that cycle, Progesterone levels drop, estrogen levels are kind of down as well. So all the hormone levels come down, which can, in some people, of course, create symptoms of, um, of PMS, I suppose. You know, there's, um, there are, are various dysphoric experiences that women can go through, um, and it's usually a temporary thing. It can can last a few days, it can last a week or more in some cases, and it can be mild or it can be really, really severe.
you know, and that's, it, it has to do with really how these hormones come on and come off. And, and, and boy, are hormones powerful things. It's real. <laughs> it's real. So ideally, everything goes well. <laughs> and, and then as a result of those declining hormones, there is a period that happens and there you're back to day one. So in, in the perfect system, it's about 28 days to do that. Okay. Now, what happens if um, a woman is going through times where she's having a period every two weeks, right? Or maybe not every 28 days, but maybe every 36 days, like it's an extended period. Or, you know, what happens if there's increasing levels of discomfort maybe in the breast tissue, swelling breasts, painful breast tissue, and a, perimen a, sorry, a, a premenstrual state? Uh, I mean, lots of, lots of symptoms can come up, come up at different times. Why, right? Well, we, we have to look at the hormones for that. We got to see what's going on first of all. You know, the, the first question I want to ask is, how are the, how is the pituitary and the ovaries talking to each other? Right? I, in, a, in a typical cycling female, right? So, you know, somebody between the, you know, teenage years and late 40s, early 50s, I mean, before perimenopause or, or full-blown menopause, of course. Um, but a normal cycle, um, we want to see like, you know, how does FSH and LH look as compared to estrogen and progesterone. How do, how do they look together? Because you remember, a, a negative feedback will tell us where the problem is. So let's just say we have a woman who's complaining of possibly like an early period. Let's just call it somewhere like 21 days. Every 21 days she has a period. And that period is very light. And you know, it's not, not, very, not very full, not very not, not flowing. Um, you know, it may or may not come with pain, but but it's not an ideal picture for fertility. It's not that it's impossible, but it's it's not an ideal system, right? You should have a nice, not heavy, but you should have a nice, you know, healthy flow of period of menstrual bleeding. It should be a um, a reasonable amount. If it's if it's scanty, that tells us that the endometrial lining didn't really thicken up very much. It wasn't a nice fluffy place for that little embryo to you know to settle. Right? And it's, it's, it's shedding early, so it doesn't even have the progesterone around. So, you know, we might look into the, the hormones and see, um, you know, estrogen is low and progesterone is low. And we might see the pituitary hormones, FSH and LH, low, all low. You know, what that tells us is just like, remember, with the male system, that would be like a secondary issue. It's not an ovarian problem. The ovaries are doing what they're told. Right, and if they're not being told to work, well, then they're not kicking out the hormones. So we have to start thinking: boy, what's what's suppressing this hormone? You know, in, in the pituitary gland, what you know, what kind of stress physiology, what kind of um, metabolic stress and pressures? You know, is this woman anemic? Um, is there really out of hand blood sugar issues? Are there you know food inflammatory reactions? Is there autoimmunity? You know, is there terrible relationships or work stress? All that matters, you know, all that really does matter. It's one thing to go through a highly traumatic event and have a have an off period for a month or two, or two maybe, but it's another thing to have that be kind of like how you roll all the time. And, um, you know, it really is quite interesting to me in my industry, especially as an acupuncturist, you know, we kind of look, ask a lot of personal questions, ask about your poops, you know, ask about your, um, your periods and things like that. Um, it tells us a lot about your your physiology and your, your 
your general wellness. And so over the, the decades, I've had a chance to ask a lot of women, you know, how their period is. And, and the vast majority of them say, oh, it's fine. That's good, you know, normal. And I said, really? Okay, so I mean, are you, do you have clots in your, in your period? Or, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of clots. Um, do you have premenstrual pain? Oh yeah, yeah, I have that too. Um, do you get really bad breast tenderness and PMS symptoms? Oh my gosh, yeah, it's the worst. Oh, okay, well, so it's not so normal, right? <laughs> it's common, absolutely common. She's not wrong about that. Her and her friends might all have very similar symptoms, but it's not ideal physiology. Right? It's just normal. It becomes our normal, right? Same thing for other symptoms. Fatigue. Yeah, it just feels normal. Yeah, I'm in my 40s now. I'm just tired all the time. No, you need to look into that. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have to start breaking apart all these different, these concepts. You know, somebody who's having, you know, scanty bleeding and early menstrual period cycles, um, you know, and we're finding pituitary suppression, might be subtle. It might not even be that big of a deal to that person as far as their, you know, their their sex life or their, you know, just their experience with their period or whatever. It might be totally manageable and okay with them. But it's telling us there is there's pressure on the system. Why is it doing that? Right? Because if it's doing that, it's also doing other stuff. And not to mention, you know, women have a lot of estrogen receptors in their brain, right? And men have a lot of testosterone receptors in their brain too. So if our sex hormone levels aren't optimal, if they're if they're on the decline at an inappropriate time of life, especially, well, the brain tissue in that example is not getting the stimulation it requires either. So we can't take these little, you know, menstrual um, irregularities lightly, even if it's not that big of a deal to the person experiencing them, because as a functional approach, we need to start thinking, well, what does that actually mean to this person? They might have come in for something else. Maybe they came in for depression, right? And we find this thing with their period. Well, they're related. You know, it's not that the depression made the period go wrong or the vice versa. It's that they all have a similar source, most likely. Some kind of inflammatory source, possibly, that's, that's hindering the system. It's stopping the, the, the flow. So just like in the male system, we want to know, is the problem in the pituitary or is the problem in the ovary itself? If it's in the ovary itself, we might see things like low estrogen or low progesterone or both, but we might see elevated FSH and LH because, hey, the ovaries just aren't listening anymore. And so the brain and pituitary have to send that signal louder. It's like, you will do it. You know, we need estrogen around you guys, so we're going to do this. And so those numbers start to go up. In fact, that's, you know, as far as diagnostically, when you're talking about a perimenopause, um, later in life, the first thing you're going to see on the blood test is usually an increase in FSH and LH because the receptors in the ovaries just aren't listening quite as well as they used to. They might still be keeping up with the estrogen and progesterone at that point, but it's requiring a higher signal to get there. So that's a sign, right? That, yep, if, if you're, let's say, 52 and now we run a blood test and we're seeing high FSH and LH. You may or may not be experiencing symptoms yet of perimenopause, but um, but you're in the shadow. You know that's that's kind of how it's looked at. Now, if you're a 24 year old woman and we're seeing this, 
that's a little different. What is going on in the ovary? That might be a really good time for a functional doctor to get a referral out for at least an ultrasound and see, image those ovaries. You know, is there atrophy there? I've seen autoimmune cases that are specific to ovarian tissue. You know, the autoimmunity is killing the ovary, right? It's becoming less responsive. Uh, might not be bad enough yet for it to completely ruin the cycle and be totally infertile, but it's, it's showing itself now. So timing in life is a big deal when you're looking at this stuff. Um, you know, what, what do we do and when? <laughs> that becomes the question. So that's the baseline. Baseline brain pituitary stimulate the ovaries. FSH is more likely to, you know, more in line with uh, estrogen. Luteinizing hormone LH is more, you know, stimulating of progesterone and FSH and estrogen is more dominant in the follicular phase in the beginning to help build the lining of the endometrium and get ready for fertilization and implantation and the developing embryo. Uh, the second half is more progesterone-based, LH, progesterone, and that helps keep the lining nice and rich and supportive for anything that happens to land there and develop into a little baby. And if that does not happen, the whole thing resets, the lining sheds, and you're back to day one. All right, and that should take 28 days, give or take a few. Um, ask any perimenopausal woman that you might know um, how their period cycles are going, and, and a very common presentation is, man, I had one at 21 days, and then I had one at 64 days, and then I had one at 30 days, and then I had one again at 19 days, and then I'm back to 42 days, and it's just wacky, and they just don't know when it's gonna happen, and it, it, it can be very uncomfortable. Um, they might experience other symptoms like hot flashing and, you know, um, there could be cognitive issues too that come up because the brain is very sensitive to these hormonal shifts. And perimenopause specifically um, is not a time of low hormone necessarily. It's a time of high and low hormone dysregulated, right? The, the signaling is getting interrupted now. The ovaries aren't responding, so the pituitary and the brain are trying to signal kind of a little bit more aggressively, and that might not be so smooth or pretty. And so they're going to get things happening at, at random times. And it's a phase, and that could last anywhere from, you know, gosh, six months. That's not very common, but um, it could go very quickly and easily, uh, or it could last years and years and really drag on. And, uh, and that, that's unfortunate. And that can be helped. You know, it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be the, the case. There are hormone replacement therapy models for that. It's not something I can offer, uh, but some women do feel a lot better on hormones. Um, there's a time for that. It's just not a functional approach. Um, more than that, you know, to, to kind of support from the base up would be supporting the adrenal system because when the ovaries are done, or, or at least, you know, they're starting to, to falter in some ways during certain times of the month even, it's the adrenal gland system. It's the adrenals is where the sex hormones come from. So a woman going through perimenopause with a healthy adrenal reserve, a nice, nice adrenal function, um, they tend to have a much easier time with that transition than, than a woman who doesn't. And the reasons to not have a healthy adrenal system can be a million reasons. It all gets back to what's, what's um, you know, stressing that system? Is it mental, emotional? Is it chemical? Is it poor sleep? Is it food-based? You know, who knows? It's, it's all those things, depending on the person. So really kind of looking into the adrenal system is a, is a big piece of that puzzle. Um, on that note, too, 
a normal younger cycling female can have adrenal system involvement that's acting to suppress the pituitary gland and therefore discoordinate the signaling all the same. So, you know, if we're seeing cycle irregularity in a 50-year-old, that's different than seeing cycle irregularity in a 20-year-old. Um, they might have similar, um, you know, mechanisms involved, but we can expect very different outcomes and the approach might be a little different. So um, that's where we want to start looking though, right? Because I'm not giving estrogen replacement therapy that's outside of my scope of practice. Um, you know, I might start helping with the adrenal system and certainly things like acupuncture and Chinese herbs and herbal formulas can be very, very helpful to kind of smooth out how that body communicates and how the, the uh, inflammatory um, scenario goes during that. And, um, and really helping that system thrive. I, you know, I, I've seen many cases where you know, just coming in for some regular acupuncture can really help smooth out you know, um, menstrual cycle irregularities, discomfort during perimenopause, you know, all of that. Help with fertility, um, not uncommon. One of the things that tends to go wrong very, very commonly, in fact, is my understanding is that it's actually one of the leading causes of infertility um, in, in the women's side and the female side is polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And this can actually be kind of diagnosed, depending on, depending on who you ask, um, with or without the presence of cysts on the ovaries. That, that's kind of more of a later term, you know, progression of this condition, right? Before there, the before the ovary is riddled with cysts, you know, which can actually happen. I mean, they can be, they have to be removed in some cases because they just are so dysfunctional. But much more commonly, there's a more subtle version of that. And all it really takes is seeing elevated blood sugar and insulin along with elevated testosterone in a woman. And usually that would dysregulate the menstrual cycle and make it so that there just isn't um, a healthy terrain for conception to occur. Um, these women might also take on some male, male characteristics, um, pardon me, characteristics. They might actually develop facial hair. Uh, I'm not talking about the occasional little chin hair or, or mustache hair that's just sitting there by itself and you know everybody in your family has one too and it's just kind of a thing for you. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about patches of of chin hair, let's say, um, to the point where they are taking measures to to hide that, to shave it, to get electrolysis to remove it. I mean, you know, it's um, it's a real condition that that can have some pretty devastating impacts on this woman, right? But they also might develop hair in other places that they don't care for. Maybe um, again, the occasional nipple hair, not the end of the world. But I mean, if they're really starting to develop nipple hair, um, and, and it was never that way five years ago, well, you know, that's some a symptom to pay attention to, right? Before all that, they're going to have cycle issues. You know, they're going to start to, um, you know, they're going to start to feel it in other ways. Uh, but we can't forget this is a blood sugar and insulin concept. So under the pressure of elevated blood sugar and, and the hormone insulin. Remember, I called insulin the essential poison. It's essential because we require it for life. Without insulin, we die very quickly. Um, but we want the smallest amount of insulin possible in our system. The healthiest people that I know have nailed their blood sugar and their insulin levels are very, very low. Most of the time they do that with exercise and, um, and 
reasonable diets, you know, low carb-ish, you know, that'll be monks, but you know, keeping their carbs and sugars way down and exercising regularly and, and usually intensely. And they create a really insulin sensitive environment. And so insulin, it takes very small amounts of insulin to get the job done. And, and that tends to be very protective. Now, if you take a person who is not very physically active, maybe they have a sedentary desk job and they're tired at the end of the day and they don't go out and exercise or walk. Um, and boy, do they love mac and cheese or whatever their comfort foods. It's so common. Um, or hey, maybe there's a couple and they develop these behaviors together because I know I love sitting on the couch eating ice cream with my wife. I, I, I truly love those moments <laughs> because I love my wife and I love that TV show that's on and I also love ice cream. Um, so you can see how that can become sort of like a, a family culture before you know it. And it's precisely how that this kind of thing happens. It happens slowly. So you might get a little extra weight on you, it's not that big a deal, but that weight starts promoting more insulin resistance and then the diet and lifestyle starts to feed into that and, and you start to get heavier yet and you get this vicious cycle now. So under this scenario, when insulin levels are surging more dramatically, because an insulin resistant person is gonna require more and more insulin to get the jobs done. So you eat a bowl of popcorn and you're gonna have a huge surge of insulin versus an athlete who might have a, the same bowl of popcorn and have a small burst, you know, burst of insulin. So you get this big burst and it's going to activate enzymes. These are, get a little sciencey on you, the 1720 lyase, okay? And there's a few others, but these are found primarily in the thecal cells of the ovary, the theca cells of the ovary. And the job of, of 1720 lyase is to basically convert estrogen into testosterone. Now this can also take place in the adrenal glands. There's other enzymes in the adrenal glands that do a very similar thing. Uh, so you can get estrogen from your adrenals, you can get it from your ovaries, you can get it from the peripheral tissues and other places, but in large part, they're ovaries, they make estrogen. So um, a lot of the testosterone in the female system comes from this mechanism if insulin levels are high. I, I, I talked about a very similar mechanism in men in the last podcast where Testosterone is turned into estrogen by aromatase enzyme activity found in the fatty tissue. Right? So this is the, the female version. 1720 lyase is the primary one that creates testosterone out of estrogen. And so now they have this squashed estrogen to testosterone ratio. They should be more estrogen dominant in some ways, and you know the testosterone should be where it is. Um, but that starts to create more insulin resistance, and so every day it gets worse and worse over time that's going to dysregulate menstrual cycles it's going to create infertility it's going to increase the male secondary characteristics like you know hair loss i didn't mention that a second ago but you get hair growth where you don't want it and you get hair loss where you don't want it so you know hair loss in women i mean i have had many many women um, over the years come into my clinic in quite a panic because of hair loss and very quickly we have to figure out what's the mechanism because if it's more of a diffuse hair loss that might be something like anemia or thyroid imbalance you know it's just kind of everywhere uh, maybe they're just generally noticing a thinness uh, there might be patchy hair loss in certain areas that can happen for various autoimmune reasons maybe stress physiology can do that um, i recall some of my cousins in college used to have you know little patches of hair on underneath their 
their their like their occiput area that would just during finals it would go and I was a little kid at the time and I just sort of you know, thought that was weird but but it makes sense to me now it was just the stress you know the pressure of the school system was making them lose hair it would grow back it was fine um, but if it's a male hormone concept in a female physiology it tends to be in the same areas that men lose hair that male balding pattern the front you know the front sides and the top so just go to anywhere anywhere where you see people and you will find these women you will see them uh, you know it can be subtle you have to know what you're looking for in some cases and sometimes it's not so subtle uh, it could be a young woman usually there's um, there's there's weight involved usually they're a little bit heavy because this this PCOS environment has been um, allowed to flourish blood sugar and insulin levels do promote weight gain and blood sugar and insulin levels going up do promote insulin resistance which makes the whole thing worse and those things then feed into this sex hormone concept and it makes testosterone which creates more insulin resistance but also you know hair growth hair loss um, you know depression you know there's a actually PCOS interestingly is a great mimicker of hypothyroid so a PCS female might feel depressed, tired, maybe even anxious a little bit, um, um, it tends to gain weight more than they like, even if they're trying to work out and be active. Um, you know, they might have bad digestive system, you know, because the whole system is out. Um, you know, those, are, those look a lot like a low thyroid, and some people might miss it. If you start looking at hair growth and hair loss, that might tell you a little bit more. Uh, but you just run the run the panels. So I get people all the time where I, you know, it's like I see the intakes and it looks like a hypothyroid, but I see some of this interesting sexual um, health, you know, hormone, and maybe even some some signs and symptoms on their body that just says, you know what, I better throw in a testosterone. You know, like 20 bucks, you could check testosterone, no big deal. And if it's elevated, well, that's a mechanism. So it's a PC, PCOS mechanism, whether they have cysts or not. So if they're looking to get pregnant, we better fix this, right? Because the clock's ticking a lot of times. They might be 30, 35 or older, and they haven't gotten pregnant, and they, they need to do this now, right? And so we need to be able to know the difference. But we need to figure out top to bottom, just like, just like every case. Is there impacts in the brain? Is there impacts in the pituitary? Is there impacts in the ovary in this case? Are there blood sugar? issues right are, are there systemic inflammatory things causing stress on the system you know is there autoimmunity around you hear me talk about these over and over again right we need to observe proper feedback we need to keep the stress physiology low we need to make sure the sex hormone balance is is in order you know and just adding hormone right adding sex hormone let's say a PCOS woman takes estrogen, progesterone to help their cycle, maybe they just put on birth control pills. That's very common. Um, great. Yeah, that might kind of smooth things over symptomatically for a little while, but it's not doing anything. It's actually, I consider it sort of bad in a way because it might hide some of those negative effects that you can't otherwise see because, you know, hormones are powerful and they're taking them every day. So when it's time to get down to you know, the brass tacks here and figure out what's going on. Sometimes we need to take a step away from the hormone replacement to see really what's happening.
Um, I think I will talk about fertility specifically. That you know, we, we touched on it because without all this, you have no fertility. But you know, fertility by itself would be a good topic. Um, I will do that. I'll do that, and we'll talk about both the male and female side. Um, it's a big topic. It's a big problem in this country. A lot of infertility. Millions and millions of dollars are spent on in vitro fertilization, and you know, those are. 10, 20, 30 grand a pop every time they try. Depends on what they have to do. Um, maybe it's PCOS. I don't know. So I hope you found that interesting. Um, this is a very complex concept. It really is. I, I try to simplify it as best as I can, but there are so many factors involved that can that can impact each step of this process. Unlike the male system, which is just sort of kind of constant. Um, the female system is always changing day to day, week to week, right? And so by the end of the month, it's a very, a very different thing. So when you test the hormones, why you're testing them during that time, what hormones are tested, right? All matters. All matters. So hope you found that interesting. Thank you so much for your time and attention. And my name is Dr. Jim Chaltis, and this is a functional approach. Bye-bye.